Good afternoon, New York, and the rest of our listeners around the globe. My name is June Stoyer, and I'm the host of the Organic View Radio Show. Our podcast is available on iTunes, Zoom, and you can also visit our website at www.theorganicview.com. If you'd like to be on the show or would like to find out about sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at questions at theorganicview.com. Today's show is sponsored by coronatools.com, the nation's leader in garden and landscaping tools. Listeners of The Organic View can receive 20% off their coronatools.com purchase by using the coupon code ORGVIEW. That's O-R-G-V-I-E-W. For more promotional offers, please visit our website at www.theorganicview.com. And don't forget to check out our contest section. On today's show, Michelle Colby, who is the program director from the Pollinator Stewardship Council, is going to talk about efforts to protect bees in the state of Ohio. So I'd like to welcome to the show... Michelle Colby. Good afternoon, Michelle, and welcome back to the show. It's been a while. Uh, Yes, thank you for inviting me again. It's wonderful to talk with you. Michelle, before we begin, can you quickly explain to our listeners that are not familiar with PSC what exactly the organization does? Uh, Yes, the Pollinator Stewardship Council is an organization of beekeepers. We were started by uh, beekeepers who were members of both the American Honey Producers Association and the American Beekeeping Federation. But our focus was the adverse impact of pesticides upon our pollinators, honeybees as well as native pollinators. So we were focused on that kind of narrow issue, um, but certainly in how do we work to protect those pollinators. And within that, it's how do we motivate the beekeepers to work to protect their own uh, honeybees as well as their own beekeeping industry. So. We have, you know, there's some latitude within that that mission, but it is always going back to the main issue of the adverse impact of pesticides on our pollinators. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Michelle, I think it's important to share with our listeners about the history of the state of Ohio as it pertains to the beekeeping community. Well, yes, thank you. It, you know, Ohio is uh, a unique state in with our history. Um, as the uh, colonists expanded after the Revolutionary War and they brought their bees with them. Um, We certainly have diverse um, agriculture and and geography here in Ohio. But one of the things, a couple of the interesting things that came out of Ohio is Reverend Lorenzo Langstroth, who is known as the father of American beekeeping, uh, that in 1852 he developed his um, movable frame hive, which allowed beekeepers to pull out a frame of honey and then put in an empty frame so bees could fill that up. Previously, they always had to pretty much destroy the hive in order to get the honey, and then they would also destroy the entire colony as well. But with the movable frame hive, you could pull frames out, you could um, add honey supers to the pile of boxes. Um, uh, So the father of uh, modern of American beekeeping is buried here in Ohio. He has a cottage that's on the National uh, Historic Register in uh, at Miami University. And then also here in Medina, Ohio, which is near where I live in Akron, uh, Medina, Ohio is uh, the AI Root Company. Now it's known as Root Candles. Uh, they are the father of modern beekeeping because AI Root developed the process to mass produce and market beekeeping equipment. So we have a long history in Ohio of beekeeping, beekeeping equipment, uh, and certainly the innovation in beekeeping to make it a a profitable business and to keep your livestock, the bees, alive from season to season. 
Michelle, can you talk about some of the challenges that organizations such as Pollinator Stewardship Council have been facing by trying to bring about changes at the federal level? Well, certainly. Uh, 2015, we had filed a case to vacate and remand the registration of Sufoxaflor because not enough data had been collected, um, and that went through the Ninth Circuit Court, so we were able to get that product vacated and remanded, and actually uh, some changes were made to that pesticide label because of our legal action so that it is not used on as many pollinator-attractive crops. It can only be used after bloom is done on any pollinator-attractive crops. So we were able, by that legal action, to make some changes to the pesticide label. So that is that took us a while to get that to happen. We filed the case in 2015. They didn't acknowledge it till 2016 um, because the courts, it's always a long system through the courts. We certainly work at the national level as well to submit comment letters when EPA is doing um, new and different things, whether it's with labeling or trying to protect pollinators. Certainly when they came out with a new bee icon for labels to supposedly tell people it was harmful to bees and it was a happy-looking bee inside a diamond shape, we certainly commented going, that's not appropriate. It should be a red circle with a line through it because that's what culturally people know as do not use on or do not do. So, you know, we do those subtle commentaries to EPA, but we also participate on EPA pollinator protective committees, whether it's the Pesticide Program Dialogue Committee. We're also part of the Honeybee Health Coalition, trying to work with the other agricultural stakeholders to make changes to best management practices in specific crops so that we can protect our pollinators. So we do a variety of things trying to make that change because there will not be any one big change that makes the difference. It's going to be a lot of little changes. And that's at the federal level, but there's still a lot of little changes at the state level that beekeeping groups can uh, start to work on. And that will sometimes help to influence the federal level changes because the, the states don't like a heavy-handed federal mandate of you will do this unless there's money tied to it. And if there isn't money tied to it, then they often will not follow through. So it takes a state, a coordinated effort at the state level as well as the federal in order for change to happen to help protect our pollinators. Michelle, can you talk about some of the challenges that organizations such as the one that you work for have when it comes to working with industry as far as bringing about these changes. On the one hand, industry, by design, manufactures these chemicals. And you have companies that are looking to make different types of changes and try to be more, I, I guess you would say, more accountable or, or rather more um, responsible. But in the same token, you see that there are certain companies that are out there that are trying to put the blame for the pollinator decline on the beekeeping community, and yet they're the same companies that are manufacturing the products which are responsible for impacting pollinator health. Can you talk about some of the challenges that organizations such as Pollinator Stewardship Council faces when trying to work with these types of companies? Uh, yes, certainly it, it can be difficult because when someone's making money off of something, they don't want to change. Uh, and I think that's across the board on any product. If somebody's making money, 
but yet the construction of that product causes environmental harm in another country or within a community, uh, profit, greed will often rule, So, which is often what I'll say is this is why we have regulation to help control greed. But certainly that's one of the issues we have too with the pesticide label is while it is there to mitigate risk, it still places all of the responsibility on the applicator or the user. Now, I saw a gentleman just the other day who was trying to get rid of weeds in the cracks in his driveway. He didn't want to use the little spray part of the bottle. He took the lid off and just started pouring it straight out of the bottle. That would be incorrect, but unless I turn him in, then nobody can cite him for violating the federal label. So many of these products, as I personally have continued to say should not be in the hands of the average human because we do not read labels. We do not follow directions that is a human fault across the board on many things. Um, whether it's setting up your DVD player, you'll find a 10-year-old to do that for you as opposed to most of us reading the directions. But with pesticide labels, when we continually use them to simply dump the blame off on someone else, and I think the whole dicamba incidents that are happening right now where you have a pesticide company saying, well, there's a learning curve to using it. That is not a, a responsible answer. Because, again, they, you have to always look at how these things, how any product is used culturally. And eventually the label will not protect, obviously, pollinators. So we can continue to make some of these changes with the label, but the label will not solve the problem. It still takes additional education and advocacy at the federal level as well as at the state level because it's easier for communities to have a buy-in to change when they know their neighbor. And I think this, is, this was one of the pluses of these state pollinator plans that developed because it was supposed to get the local stakeholders together to help solve problems. What came about with many of these state plans is they were usurped by outside of those states, had different groups coming in saying, you'll have your plan, it'll be like this. Ignoring the local stakeholders, whether it was beekeepers or farmers or um, master gardeners or, or you know the school ground, whatever stakeholder was involved near where pesticides could be used. There were those states where outside groups came in and said, you will do this. Well, that just destroyed the whole concept of these state pollinator plans. They are only education tools, but it is an opportunity for everybody locally to get together. In some of those states, the beekeepers were excluded or the beekeepers were looked down on when they got together groups of stakeholders like they did in Massachusetts. While we did here in Ohio, we did the same thing. We got groups of stakeholders together to develop these plans. And then you start to get these outside influences that say, oh, no, you can't do it that way. When that's defying the whole mission of those state pollinator plans. So it gets very frustrating for the, at the advocacy level when the local stakeholders really are kind of behind the eight ball. They, they weren't prepared to be involved in some of these state plans, and yet they need to be and they want to be. So this is, again, where it shows the federal policy, create a state pollinator plan was actually prepared too soon before the states were ready to actually get stakeholders together and the stakeholders themselves were prepared to take on this task of creating these state plans. So what, one of the things I've noticed with 
in talking to beekeeping groups around the country is the beekeepers need support at doing advocacy locally. They need to know how to form their opinion that will support the beekeepers in their state. So we have come in to help guide them, whether it's providing um, strategic planning, uh, whether it's simply educating their board members how to be a board member of a state association. And this is how we will start to make change. But we have to get up to speed with these outside groups that want to influence what happens in the different states. It's very interesting what you're saying. Getting back to something that you said earlier in your response, when you were talking about the gentleman who just dumped the chemical into his driveway, it made me think of pillows. People have those stupid tags on their pillows and they're petrified of removing them because it's a federal law to remove it. And yet people keep the tags on. But when it comes to something as dangerous as a pesticide, they don't follow the label. And correct. industry puts the responsibility fully on the end user. So that's, that's right. uh, a very interesting dynamic right there. And right. And, and, and again, these are such volatile chemicals that will change within the environment that have a long half-life in the environment. I don't care if it's an herbicide or a systemic pesticide. They have, they have half-lives beho- beyond the initial application. And far too many people, and I hear this even from beekeepers, who will, who will say if EPA registers it, it must be safe. And they are misconstruing completely the word safe, because if they read the label, they would see that it kills many, many things, has a long half-life, and depending on how you apply it, you could harm yourself or your pet. You must read the label, because this is how EPA and the pesticide manufacturer mitigates the risk or the directions on the label. But the cultural practice of people using pesticides is because if you use it and your arm does not drop off, gosh, it must be safe. Meanwhile, it's doing such damage to the environment, you know, because there was that man puddling, puddling herbicide on, in the crack in his driveway, and the directions clearly will say, do not do that. And then it's going to rain later today, so that all that stuff's going to run into the water, into streams, and cause damage to aquatic uh, um, life. So these things have repercussions in how we use them, but we have gotten so blithely, we just blithely ignore the directions on pesticide labels. So a lot of what we try to do is continue to educate, whether it's beekeepers, master gardeners, uh, the general public, small children, anyone who wants to listen of you must understand and read the label because that label is actually there to protect you and your family, as well as the beneficial insects we need. In regards to master gardeners, I'm a master gardener, and I took the toughest exam in the state of New York when I took the course, and master gardener is a great certification to have, but it big deal. It's, um, for the most part, it's, it's a great accomplishment as far as learning, but you can never master horticulture. It's something that is an ongoing lifetime pursuit, uh, like with any major Mm -hmm. area of study. So uh, working with other master gardeners, I remember just trying to educate, or should I say enlighten, 
some of my fellow master gardeners about not composting something like dandelions or mugwort. Um, that's that's something that's a basic, but you're dealing with people that, because of that title, also have an ego that goes with it. So it's it's just very interesting when you're working with that particular crowd. But getting back to the responsibility, if you think about society, how we have progressed, and if you think about something like alcohol, in the state of New York, I don't know how it is in other states, but in the state of New York, a bar or a restaurant, if a bar or a restaurant serves someone who is clearly intoxicated, they can be held liable for any any accidents, any if someone dies as the result of this person driving or harming someone else. But yet when it comes to chemicals, which are clearly something that need to be handled very with, with great care, they just automatically put the responsibility solely on the end user, which is it's it's mind blowing because if you think about all the different examples, aside from what I just stated about alcohol, it's preposterous that this is the reality that we're facing. Yes, you know, I, I, it's interesting that within agriculture, I, I often look at it as each farmer, each rancher, each beekeeper really needs to be their brother's keeper because what you apply on your land will affect the farmer across the road. These things do not stay put, whether it's the pesticides, whether it's the soil, whether it's the water that runs off your field and goes into your neighbors, whether it is the beekeepers going from field to field. We have to be aware especially in agriculture, but also in the cities with these mosquito control products and with our home gardeners and with the lawn care companies, that you have to be your brother's keeper and realize if you're applying a pesticide, where is it going to go? What harm might it cause that you don't want it to cause? Does your, you know, is your neighbor highly allergic to things? Does your neighbor have bees? You know, what, what are the ramifications of your action? And we are as a society, I think far too self-centered to think of, I'm going to spray this stuff on my land, it's for my crop, and to heck with everybody else. Well, you can't do that, even in farming country, because the road does not stop the translocation of pesticides or any other farming activity. It, it will go to your neighbor's field. It will. And his stuff will go to your field. So... We have to be aware, and I think it's been quite aware with this dicamba issue, that just because one farmer chooses to buy dicamba-resistant seeds, and then they use lots of dicamba trying to kill all the weeds, they will have an effect on those farmers not using those seeds or who have an apple crop or have some other crop that they cannot get dicamba-resistant seeds. So farming is very, just like all of the ecosystem, it is all tied together, and we must be our brother's keeper so that all of us can have safe, healthy, pesticide-free food to eat, that our bees and other pollinators stay alive so they can protect us from pests as well as give us honey and pollinate our crops. We have to realize we are all connected. I, I realize that means we have to talk to each other, and 
that's hard for some people, but we have to talk to each other about what we're doing on our land. I think that conversation is taking place, or it's starting to take place, rather, and I'm starting to see more conversations take place with some of the small operators, such as um, another friend, Matthew Kroger from Ash Tree Apiary in Colorado, as well as Bill Castro, who's down in Maryland. They're trying to work together with other hobbyists and get things rolling in their states. So right. I know and, that, and, yeah, Maryland has made a lot of progress. Yes, they have. And it's because they have come together to work with allies on the issue. They have come together to talk to other people. It Because it, it we all need to have a conversation, not scream and yell at each other. And you want to have the conversation before you have lots of massive bee kills or you have the conversation before your neighbor's crop is wiped out because of products you used. So you want to be able to talk to your neighbor in a sane and calm manner where you can resolve any crises before the crisis happens. So it's wonderful what they did in Maryland with uh, restricting the neonics. They're working on some of these things in other states as well. But it takes the local people to make the change because that is who the local legislators will listen to, our local people. They're not going to listen to outsiders who come in and say, we want you to do this. Eh, let me talk to my local people. Because those are the ones who are paying property taxes and income taxes who live there and who can vote for them or not vote for them. So we could make a lot of change locally, but our beekeeping groups need to be need to be supported in those efforts. So they need some education on how to run their organizations. They need some education on how to do advocacy. They need some education on how to um, to form their position and present their position. They need to sometimes just start small with, like here in Ohio, they're uh, revamping some of their apiary laws. Well, thankfully, they did reach out to Ohio State Beekeepers because we have started to make ourselves known here in Ohio. Um, I am also the treasurer of Ohio State Beekeepers as well as program director for Pollinator Stewardship Council. And we simply, during Pollinator Week, did during uh, an advocacy day, which was simply a meet and greet. Let's go meet and greet the agricultural committee members in the House and Senate. And we had 23 meetings with people. Everyone was thrilled to meet with us. And it just starts with a conversation. And that's a great way to start advocacy and to introduce yourselves as an industry, as beekeepers, to your legislators. And then you start to bring up other issues because you've had that initial conversation. But so many beekeepers, when you say, I don't want to be political, it's not about being political. You have the right to educate people about your concerns, and that's what advocacy is. It's education. You're not endorsing someone to run for office. You are going and telling them what are your issues. And it's the same as what the pesticide companies do. They go to every legislator and say, these are our issues. So you have to educate them. Not everybody in your legislature knows what a honeybee is. They can't tell the difference between a honeybee and a wasp. And they don't know what the issues are that beekeepers have unless beekeepers go and talk to them. That's an excellent point. And I, I think that if more people took the same approach that you just described, I think we might see better results. I know that there are certain elected officials, such as, Senator Raymond Lesniak, who was the New Jersey State Senator, he's very aggressive when it comes to environmental issues. And in addition to some of the great things that he's doing to protect the environment, I do know that he is working towards making um, 
changes with the laws as far as protecting pollinators. So that's something that we can look forward to, at least in New Jersey. But I have to agree that at the state level, we do seem to have a better chance. Michelle, can you share with our listeners any suggestions if they are trying to do something at the state level, what they should do if they're coming up against one obstacle after the other? Should they reach out to you? Um, what do you What do you advise? Well, certainly, you know, they can reach out to us. I can connect them with either allies in their state. Um, I'm happy to come and provide some training on basic advocacy. Sometimes it, it, where, where people or groups are struggling, it's because they don't have a plan. And you, when you're dealing with the legislature and they have their sessions and they've got their committees and they have their tight schedules, you as an advocate have to have a plan. You have to know what it is you want, the solutions you need, how you're going to educate them, who's going to go and do the education, because not every beekeeper or advocate it can advocate for themselves. So you have to make that decision or who are the best speakers and representatives for your group. And, and sometimes it might not be the president of the state association. It might be the vice president, secretary, or somebody else in the club. So you don't want to get hung up on titles. You want to represent your organization to its best, but you've got to plan ahead. Certainly they can contact us. Um, we provide services to our state association um, members, and we'll come in and do some strategic planning, uh, board training, um, and help them with that advocacy. But it does help to also have other allies in the state. So beekeepers have to realize you don't have to do it alone, that just because we're out in our bee yard, usually alone, doesn't mean in the greater world we have to always be alone. You can align yourself with other groups who have uh, similar missions and have the same focus as you, and it doesn't dilute your message and it doesn't, uh, you don't want to get hung up in other people's so-called politics about something. Whether you're going to align yourself with Friends of the Earth, if they're strong in your state, like, the, like up in Massachusetts, or you align yourself with, um, you know, maybe the Master Gardeners are very much on the beekeeper side, and, you know, they're, they're, they want to control pesticides better. Maybe that is the good group in your community to partner with. So you've just got to, you have to go out and talk with everyone and set up a plan. And it, because a plan is how you have success. If you don't have a plan, you're not going to be successful. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I, I think that's excellent advice. I know here in New York, it really does depend upon the group. If you look at places like the Brooklyn Botanic Garden, which I can't sing their praises enough, you have a wealth of resources at your fingertips. I mean, so many people there, very devoted to protecting the environment. And groups that are affiliated with the Brooklyn Botanic Garden. On Long Island, there are a number of different county committees as well as different groups. Different master gardener groups in different areas are advocating for certain things that might be more in line with some of the things that you might share as an individual. So I think it's great, a great suggestion to explore all those options. And, mm -hmm. you know, once again, just because someone shares a particular view that may or may not agree with yours doesn't mean that you should just say, okay, well, that's it and let it go. I think it's a very wise idea to try to align yourself with other like-minded people and not necessarily in your state. 
Michelle, thank you so much for your time. I think this has been just a wonderful interview which provides so much information for people that are looking to bring about changes at the local level. So thank you. Well, thank you. And can you share your website information with our listeners? Uh, yes, they can find out more information about the Pollinator Stewardship Council at www.pollinatorstewardship.org. And folks, if you would like to support the Pollinator Stewardship Council, there is a donation button on their website. Thank you for tuning in. Please check out the companion article, which will appear on theorganicview.com. Thank you for tuning in. This has been June Stoyer with the Organic View Radio Show. Have a great afternoon.